Hey, I'm Mel. And I'm Andres. And I'm Susan. And you're listening to Mixtape, your favorite Afro-Latin podcast. What she said. Today's single is inspired by the song Hong Kong Mambo by Tito Puente and his orchestra. Today, we're listening to Arroz con Salsa by Orquesta de la Luz. Orquesta de la Luz is a Japanese salsa band founded in 1984 by who is still its lead singer, Nora Suzuki, and her friend and percussionist, Jen Ogimi. One can track the influences that gave rise to salsa music in Japan, Orquesta de la Luz being a prime example of this, all the way back to the 60s and the 70s when Tito Puente and La Fania All Stars started visiting Japan consistently. Eventually, Orquesta de la Luz became very successful in the US and in Latin America. Among the many curious facts about Orquesta de la Luz is that Nora did not know Spanish when she started trying to sing salsa. But her appreciation for the music was undeniable. She explains in a BBC article that she wants to keep spreading salsa into Japan because, I quote, People are too serious there, she says. I was like that myself. I'm happier now. I love salsa and it has always given me joy. In Arroz con Salsa, Orquesta de la Luz think about the combination of cultures that they themselves represent. They say, No hay nada más que arroz con salsa. There's only rice with salsa. In all fairness, this could still be talking about just Latin America. I mean, for me, rice constitutes the first two levels of my nutritional pyramid. However, the rest of the song makes its message clear. Nora sings. Arroz con salsa es tremenda combinación. Un buen arroz oriental y la salsa latina con sabor. Si tú unes sabores de lugares diferentes, la armonía especial se siente en el ambiente. Rice and salsa is a terrific combination. A good eastern rice and salsa latina with its flavor. If you mix flavors from different places, you can feel that special harmony in the air. Welcome to our single number five, Hong Kong Mambo. This is Mixtape. Welcome to the Mixtape Podcast. If you've been listening for the last few months, we've been presenting our rhythm season. This month, we are shifting gears a little bit. As you are likely aware of, there has been an increase in hate crimes and hate speech against Asians and Asian Americans in the United States. This increase became quite noticeable at the beginning of and throughout the pandemic. Increases in violence against the Asian and Asian American community hit a tragic climax just last month with the mass shooting of eight individuals in Atlanta where six of the victims were Asian and Asian American women. We decided to pause our regularly scheduled Rhythms episode to provide space for our AAPI community to reflect, respond, and raise awareness about the experience of Asians and Asian Americans in both our dance spaces and other areas of life. As a podcast striving toward living in a community that aims for anti-racist beliefs and behaviors, we found this to be the perfect opportunity to act in solidarity with the AAPI community. To do this, our graphic content creator and today's host, Susan Calcio, is leading a conversation with a group of social and professional Asian and Asian American dancers here in our Triangle community and beyond. We hope our listeners take this opportunity to listen and learn. And we are grateful for Susan's leadership on this episode. Thank you to Andres and Mel for providing context and space for this episode.
I've been doing lots of reflecting because of events that are happening, and it's brought up a lot of emotions and thoughts. I'm sure that's what many in the AAPI community are going through as well. For many of us, this is the first time we're speaking up. In my case, I found use for my voice not too long ago either. It was last year, after the killing of George Floyd and the rising of the Black Lives Matter movement. Due to that awakening, I've gotten much more comfortable with and passionate about speaking up against racism and now against anti-Asian hate. This past weekend, I went to my first march, a Not Your Model Minority March in downtown Raleigh. I found myself yelling with the crowd, not your fetish, not your fantasy. It felt powerful to use my voice for my community. After walking down those streets in Raleigh, holding my handmade sign, I felt very grateful to be able to lead this single for Mixtape. Before we dive into the conversation our guests and I had, I would like to provide a brief historical context regarding racism and discrimination against Asian Americans. Please check the resources for this episode on our website for more extensive details. Also, if you'd like to listen to a more in-depth exploration, Tune into the podcast Asian American History 101 by father daughter duo Jen and Ted. Let's go back to the beginning. Much of the racism, stereotyping, and issues that we experience today as Asian Americans can be traced all the way back to when the first Asians migrated to the US, where they were met with much inequality and exclusion. In the mid-1800s, because of extreme poverty in China from the opium war deaths, mass floods, and crop failures, many Chinese people migrated to the U.S. seeking riches from the gold rush. Many ended up taking dangerous work building the Transcontinental Railroad. And since they were willing to work longer hours with less pay, they caused a rift with the white laborers, who were claiming that they were stealing our jobs. Sound familiar? The inequality was apparent from the beginning. Chinese immigrant workers had to pay a foreign miners tax, as well as an additional police tax every month. And because of People versus Hall, weren't even allowed to testify in court against whites. In 1975, the Page Act passed, targeting women from Asia, barring them from migration to the US because of speculation of prostitution, thus preventing Asians from starting families in the US. This act paved the way for the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which suspended immigration of Chinese laborers for 10 years and excluded them from citizenship by naturalization. This is the first and only law that prohibits a specific racial group from migrating to the U.S. The Scott Act then expanded prohibitions by denying re-entry to the U.S. of anyone who is ethnically Chinese. And then, in 1892, Chinese immigration was banned for another 10 years due to the Jerry Act. All these exclusion acts sprouted because white America saw Asians as a threat to the nation and deemed them as unclean, diseased, and unfit for citizenship, calling them yellow peril. Asian exclusion continued to be renewed through various acts and naturalization denied. And then in 1941, Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, putting 110,000 Japanese people, most of which were U.S. citizens, in 10 concentration camps all because of fear and suspicion that they were enemies. The model minority concept, which suggested that Asian Americans were the ideal immigrants of color due to their economic success, developed during and after World War II. A year after FDR signed Executive Order 9066, Congress repealed the Chinese Exclusion Act, but not out of the goodness of their hearts, but to support Trans-Pacific Alliance against the Axis powers and Japan. To counteract yellow peril fear, they repainted the Chinese as the law-abiding, quiet, peaceful, model minority. From then on, mainstream media continuously used the model minority myth as a tool to compare Asian Americans against African Americans, to further discriminate against the Black community. But Asian American activists like Yuri Kochiyama did not fall into this trap that tried to pit Asians against other people of color. Inspired by her friendship with Malcolm X, Kochiyama was active in anti-Vietnam War and civil rights movements, as well as worked to bring reparations to Japanese internees. In 1982, Vincent Chin, a Chinese-American man, was beaten to death by two white men because they thought he was Japanese. The murderers received a fine and no prison time. 
This sparked a movement for pan-Asian American rights. All these events just scratched the surface of Asian American history. I encourage you to check out the resources on our website to learn more. With this historical context in mind, let's start the journey by getting to know our guests. Hi, my name is Leslie Cho, and I am a second generation Chinese American, meaning my parents uh, are from China and immigrated to America, and I was born and raised here. Hi, my name is Pei Wei. Um, I identify as Chinese. I was born in China. Um, I moved around quite a bit from France to here. Still waiting for my green card. So my name is Tina Cavicchio. I am a dancer, choreographer, performer, and I am half Japanese and half Italian. So I am a Hapa. I don't know if that's right to say, but yes, technically Hapa. Um, so yes, I am a mutt. I'm a mixed, mixed breed person. And I identify as, I like to say queer, um, but I'm a lesbian cisgendered woman. So I go by she, her identify as a lesbian. Yeah, hi, uh, my name is Ronald Wynn. Uh, most of my friends just call me Ron for short. Um, ethnically, I identify as a Vietnamese American born in the United States. Uh, my parents were both Vietnamese. Um, I introduced myself socially, however, as Asian American. Um, and usually I wait until someone asks kind of the second layer question of what is your ethnicity before I introduce the fact that I am of Vietnamese descent. It's a tough time for the AAPI community right now. So I want to start by checking in on how folks have been feeling and responding to Asian hate and hold space for all of us to let some of those feelings out. Well, it's really shitty. Well, I think when I first heard a lot about the elder attacks and even the the shootings that happened in Atlanta, I I didn't feel much. It was kind of that of I don't know if it's just like cognitive like dissonance, but then I started talking about it with some people and then I realized like wow, I feel horrible. And it's just made me reflect on a lot of things um, really in really in depth about my life and also society at large. Um, I, I did explore a lot of these these type of topics in a very deep way and very deep and meaningful way through art and also just my studies in college. But I think like as I've focused on like my adult life afterwards, I haven't thought about it as in-depth as I did before, and it's really made me do that again. It is good, I think, for us to collectively reflect on ourselves and change the narrative in America, because I think a lot of us have realized, like, um, the narrative of Asians and Asian Americans has been dictated by white people, and just realizing that we can take control of that narrative. My feelings on it, um... Actually, Leslie, the way you described it kind of resonates with me. Now, I had heard of it earlier, starting as early as like March 2020, when the pandemic first hit. We started seeing the articles on like um, like mediums like Next Shark, um, and my first response to it was kind of this weird combination of like disappointment and denial. And you you said it's like cognitive dissonance. It's like you almost don't want to give it credence because you don't want to believe it's happening to people like us. As like it kind of went on and then it kind of hit like this climax this year, it, it went from that to outrage to kind of like for me, uh, and, and I have to speak for myself as an Asian male, uh, like a low level anxiety, like the disillusionment and the realization of, oh, wow, I can actually be targeted for the way I look. Whereas previously, like, you understand logically that it's a possibility. Now it just feels very real. So for me, uh, personally, I have started hearing about it, like Ron said, since March, that since the pandemic started, uh, this virus has been called the Chinese virus, which is very direct um, to us or to me personally. Um, 
I do feel very saddened by the news, um, but not just because it is our community who's been the most impacted, but also um, the fact that it is a bit ridiculous that by 2020 that we are still experiencing some of these things that has been so dated so much that it makes me sad to see that um, once I believed a country that was more equal, <laughs> that turns out to be not the case at all. So yeah, it makes me very sad. Yeah, no, I've, I've been feeling the same. It's, it's like an uncovering of a lot of emotions. It's an uncovering and it's like a rediscovering and re-experiencing past experiences, you know, in a new light. We've been hearing more about all of the different violence that has been happening and it has been increasing in a more violent manner. And that's not to say this wasn't happening before, you know, we just weren't talking about it and it wasn't in the news, still isn't really in the news. It's been like suppressed and, and I feel myself doing that. I, I feel like that is part of like the Asian American in me, you know, the just be good, like, don't worry about it. It's fine. You know, kind of hush hush that I've been told growing up is, is I feel like what is being uh, uncovered now, like there is no more hush hush and like Asian Americans and Asians are realizing the dangers and, and feeling, feeling more of this pain, you know, and actually feeling it and letting ourselves feel it. In a way, those those the shootings that happened and the murders of those Asian American women just almost validated the fact that we were going through struggles because we sensed it all of our life. I, I heard this quote um, that that was, "I want you to care when people are still alive." And so, why does it take murder for us to come to terms of? just where we're at and the pain that we feel. It's really hard for me to like, think about it like in a personal manner. And like when I, and maybe it's because I've like separated myself so much without knowing from like the Asian culture that it seems like, like I forget that I'm Asian. You know what I mean? Like I completely forget that I am an Asian American so often. Like I said, maybe because I have this like armor on of like, look at all this other stuff. But like, I know my mother has been like freaking out because she's like watching the news and all this stuff. I definitely worry, especially for Asian women. And it's so weird that I'm saying it because I'm an Asian woman. But like, I feel like there's some, some disconnect here that's happening that I don't even understand fully. Heavy feelings going around from past experiences of pain. For me, these feelings are even shedding new light on previous experiences. After that initial reflection, we shared our personal experiences as Asian and American people. Ron started off with his perspective as an Asian American male. Almost the way I would describe it is it's a uh, crisis of belonging. Right. So I, I referenced going back as early as, you know, when we were in school as an Asian American, when you are one of a very few uh, Asians in school, right, you don't have um, a lot of peers that you can identify with. One is it kind of makes you a little bit of an easy target because you're different than other kids. So you kind of become the target of bullying and teasing and whatever. And the, the other problem is you kind of struggle because at home, you know, you're like my parents carried with them all of our um, uh, cultural influences, all of our habits, um, all of the um, cultural wisdom that they imparted onto me. But we don't have that same level of communal and cultural depth that surrounds us, you know, having like families and neighbors that can identify with us. Right. So it's like I can't be fully Vietnamese 
at the same time, I'm always going to look different than other kids. So as much as I try to belong, right, I'm always going to be a little bit different. And that point of differentiation, in this case, a bad case, is, all, is often pointed out in social settings. And then it transforms with age. It, it becomes less explicit. And then for me, has become more subtle. And to the point of what you're mentioning, not Asian enough by Asian standards, but not American enough by American standards, um, I think that's definitely something we probably all really relate to. And and I myself relate to being of mixed blood, right? So forever, I will never be Asian enough or white enough, technically. But, you know, I, I grew up in a predominantly white area with I was the Asian in school. So because of that, I did really feel like I, I was just Asian growing up, I often would forget that I'm white, but the, the othering, you know, always happened. I grew up in a small rural, mostly white town in North Carolina. And I constantly got the question, of course, where are you from? Even though I was born in the same hospital as most of my classmates, like 30 minutes away, like, you know, and then like just being called Lucy Lou when I'm like in kindergarten, like I can, I can name so many things like. I wasn't Christian. Um, I wasn't born in a Christian household. So I was regularly told by classmates like, oh, you're going to go to hell, like very casually. I was told like um, my flaws being Asian. I was being I was told that I was a terrorist by classmates. And it was very, very difficult just being physically intimidated. I remember like there's this my my school was so like in the hillbillies we had like a redneck wall it was literally called the redneck wall it's just this wall where like you see like a cluster of like people in camouflage and i would like walk past and they would sometimes yell at me they would sometimes approach me and i st i there were other routes i could take to leave high school like I mean, at the end of the day, when I'm going, you know, to to go home and stuff, but I always made myself go this route because I didn't want them to control and dictate where I could walk. But it was very uncomfortable, you know, just experiencing that every day. You know, I still really remember when, you know, they called there's a classmate that just came up to me and came up to my face and said, hey, like you're a terrorist. And it was out of the blue it was just in homeroom. And then I went to the guidance counselor and they just told me that I cared too much about what other people think. And so like, for me, like, it was very, very heavy and I'd never really had conversations about race. So I internalized it in a way that I thought that I was the person to blame. It was because of how I existed in the world. There was something wrong with me. And so like. I luckily got into like a boarding school when I was like 16. Um, and so as soon as I could leave, I kind of just left. It's, it's, it's just crazy because, um, you know, I really didn't learn much about like Asian American history and things like that, just part of our experience. I, I do think there are big experiences that you can have, but uh, the experience I would say of being Asian American is kind of like, death by a thousand paper cuts. It's, it's constant and it's, it's almost imperceptible to some, but it's, it's definitely there. Leslie and Ron touched on many struggles characteristic of being Asian American. Belonging, but not belonging, to the point where you start asking yourself that question people keep asking you. Where are you from? Peiwei's experience as an Asian immigrant woman underscored how these experiences of racism and discrimination go beyond the U.S. I think my experience has been a little bit of a mix. I've had some great experience with people who just accept who I am and have never questioned my nationality, my ethnicity, because I went to France um, as a young teenager. Um, being the only Asian kid in school um, with everybody else not being Asian was a little bit weird. But most of the time, it was very low-grade racism, racist comments that I just kind of brushed it off, only because the culture that I'm from always told me, 
like you said, Ron, just work hard and forget about what everyone is saying and eventually things will pay off. I did experience a lot of good things of people accepting my culture, of trying to learn my culture. And I hate to bring up the fact that being an Asian woman in different countries, whether it's France or in the U.S., it, it, it is definitely a huge problem um, of having yellow fever or Asian fever in this case that I cannot count how many times I have just been referred to as the anime girl or the ABG. And a lot of the times that it makes me feel really uncomfortable being around somebody that I'm dating only because I cannot tell their intention of whether they're um, actually interested in my culture or are they just trying to exploit the fact that I'm Asian. Tina's candid reflections are illuminating. From her idea of self as an Asian queer woman to the mild suppression of her Asian identity. While we have different levels of connection to our Asian background, I could relate to many of her experiences being of mixed Asian and white heritage. All the family that I was around, whether it was my stepfather, my father's was like just super white. I always felt like when I was around my family, like my, my father's side of the family, like I just was like, whoa, I look just completely like a sore thumb. Like I do not look anything like these people. Like every time that I would go out with my father, they, people would always ask if I was adopted. So from like very early on, I didn't know like what that was at the time, but I always felt like, oh my God, like I just, these people look so different from me. You know, my mother talked about how like my father's side of the family was like racist towards like my sister and towards her and like saying stuff about Pearl Harbor and like that she wasn't educated because my mom has an accent. So like I know a big reason why my mother wasn't really pushing us to like learn Japanese and stuff because she was worried about people thinking we were less educated. But then I grew up in a predominantly white school. I remember there were some Asian kids there, but like it was almost like I wasn't Asian enough to be friends with the Asian people. And then I also wasn't white enough to like not have my race pointed out all the time. And so there was like tons of racist joke all the time. You know, if I'm eating like a tuna sandwich that it's like I'm eating a cat or like uh, whatever, all the racial like slurs, like thinking that I wasn't attractive because I wasn't white. I remember just like having, like, I remember like looking up on the internet, like how to like, like do your makeup or something to like appear more white. And I would like do my makeup differently. I bought green contacts. I dyed my hair blonde and I wore Abercrombie and Fitch. I was like, let me try to look as white as possible so that I don't like stand out because I was like very much standing out to my peers. Um, so yeah, definitely had a lot of shame for many reasons and definitely have like shoved it down. It almost, um, because I do feel this, I have not experienced as outright racism as some of my like full-blooded Asian American friends have. And, and the more I think about it, the more I'm realizing like my proximity to whiteness is such a benefit to me. And the same for you, because the fact that we are both mixed there is definitely a proximity to whiteness, which lessens our outright rage, racist experience, I would say, and this is not for all. Um, and there are different experiences, but the fact that people are confused and don't think of you as completely Asian is in itself a way that they're not gonna be racist towards you in the typical Asian manner. And that is definitely a benefit. And that's, I think that plays into the preference of like Eurocentric features and, and the way of being and all of that. Like you see this even within Asian culture. Like I get this a lot. They're like, oh, so pretty. You're like half, you're half, yes. you're half it. So it's more pretty. Yeah. I'm like, no, but why? Yes, like, I know. That's like, actually my mom, my mom has this in her head. My, my girlfriend is a hundred percent Indian. And my mom was just like, oh, you're so pretty. You must be mixed. And she's like, no. Yes. I'm 100%. She's like, oh, but you're so pretty, though. I was like, 
Ooh. I think it's interesting. And like, again, it's like how much of this is like because I'm a woman and how much is like because of my race or how much is like both. I have gone like, in, I, I have looked so many different ways. Like right now I look like a butchy lesbian that wears boys clothes. In the past, I've had many other different looks. I've had really long hair. I've been like appearing more femme with like long black hair, which maybe made me look more Asian. I don't know. But I know that like being a woman and possibly also being Asian, no, definitely also being Asian, the over-sexualization of Asian women is just like so real, right? That's just like a very real thing. And it doesn't happen to me anymore because of the way that I look. But like, I know that there were times where people were surprised that like I was loud or something or that I wasn't like submissive or like, you know, or that I like wasn't going to take like shit or like dumb people saying dumb things to me or whatever. I've just seen like and, and heard people and the stereotypes about like Asian women and like, oh my God, my fucking father literally will date only Asian women because he thinks that they will just like listen and like not have a voice and like just be obedient and like not um, like make a fuss if he's like cheating or whatever. I think because of this like stereotype, he goes after just Asian women. And it, it makes me question because I know the stereotypes of Asian women that have been placed on them. And it's just kind of bothersome to me that like the stereotypes exist. And then there are these people that target Asian women. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, you said it right. You said the stereotypes placed on them. It's yeah. not that Asian women are quiet or docile, as said, you know, and it's very frustrating because honestly, I think Asian women are amazing and powerful and strong. They mm -hmm. like hold the family together and they make stuff happen. Because I was curious of how the intersectionality of her identity has affected her, I asked Tina how her queerness plays into her experience as an Asian woman. In general, like I said, it's like, is it because I'm a woman or Asian or both? I don't know. But like me being interested in women was like very sexualized. And I think it is for a lot of women too. But maybe the Asian thing also added to that fact of like even more hypersexualization of it, you know? Um, because yeah, as I was like getting old, like in high school and stuff, like I remember just like, um, you know, like I was like assaulted, like sexually, like by multiple people on different occasions. And like, I don't know if because of my like race that there was some influence in that or of like maybe what people were thinking in their minds of like, there's an Asian woman or like maybe looking at me as like, I'm a woman, but also like less than because of my race. I'm not sure. Several guests of Mixtape have said before how the Afro-Latin dance scene is a microcosm of society. I was curious as to how our Asian background shapes our experiences in that microcosm. Tina and Peiwei started by sharing their perspective as professional dancers in the scene. You feel a little bit more vulnerable as an Asian um, dancer in the community only because now I am being labeled as an Asian dancer who's dancing a dance form that is not native to my culture. Um, not only that, I sometimes question my success, whether it's because I am the just an extra number of diversity that, oh, look, there's another Asian, there's another somebody who's not from our community dancing this dance versus I'm being judged by my skill. That does make me question things a little bit more. So that's, that's just in general as a professional dancer. As I'm thinking about it, I'm like, maybe I don't advertise my Asian-ness because people thinking, maybe in my mind, since I'm in this like Afro-Latin dance community, if people think that I'm Latin, then I'm more valid as a teacher. Possibly, 
that could possibly be a subconscious thing that's happening in my mind because why am I never saying it? You know what I mean? I only say it if it's asked, but I don't know. I'm kind of just like speculating my own mind right now as I'm talking about it because like I said, I don't think a lot of people know that I am Asian until they ask me. So I think a lot of people who hire me just don't think about that. I actually get hired for things because of my queerness a lot of times. Of course, as a social dancer, I also wanted to hear the opinions of my fellow social dancers, Leslie and Ron. Overall, I've had a really great experience um, in this community. I've felt really welcomed and accepted for the most part. Um, I think if there are sort of things um, to, to be critiqued, it's more in micro microaggressions that just exist in society at large. So of course, we're just a smaller subset of that and it's there too. Um, but overall, I have um, been welcomed and um, accepted in the community. As an Asian male, this one's difficult for me. Largely speaking, at least at the surface, the dance scene feels very inclusive. Right, it feels like more of a melting pot. You get accepted into it, etc. Um, and one of the things that more stood out to me was that I didn't feel, at least immediately, like whether there were any racial influences on my experience. If anything, what I saw, um, and slightly outside the scope of this discussion, was that it was more uh, like, uh, especially my uh, female black friends who were experiencing like explicit um, discrimination in the dancing. And I was trying to understand that, like why was it that I was getting this different experience? And I was like, I'm already like a pretty proficient dancer. I'm taking these classes, like, you know, it kind of makes sense, follows would want to dance with me because I'm good enough. And that's actually when I hit on it. I went through the steps of having to what I call do behavioral compensation, take classes, demonstrate proficiency, demonstrate that I am good enough to dance with others in order to be able to belong, right? So we kind of see this theme come back up. And again, like I, I believe this is a behavioral habit that we've kind of uh, extended to many aspects of life. You know, this is a, a, a commonly Asian behavior has these deep cultural roots. And what, what it resulted in me was that um, the racial influences actually occurred beneath my conscious awareness. My attempt to, I guess, dare I say, overcompensate was really a response to what I think is almost an asexualization of Asian males, right? So you'll see that there's a lot of, or a fair bit of chatter or a bit, fair bit of resentment among Asian males. And the thing here is it's a little bit of a double bind that we feel that the way we are depicted in common society and media is that we feel emasculated. It's a very weird place to, to operate from that we would resent that we are, we don't feel that society values us as romantic and sexual partners. Then we layer in our behavioral habits to try to compensate for that, right? Um, we work harder, try to advance further in our careers. And in the case of the uh, Latin dance scene, what I've noticed amongst myself and my fellow Asian males is, we try to become very, very good at our dances. And we don't recognize that what would life have been like if we were not as good? Would we have been accepted? After I came to the Afro-Latin dance scene, I was exposed to and fell in love with the huge cultural and historical background of the community. Let's listen to the ways in which our guests participate in and build a connection with this community as Asian or Asian Americans, B 
being of a different cultural background. Okay, like really diving into this culture that I'm so a part of and so much want to respect and understand, but also not forgetting my own culture at the same time, because I feel like that has happened for sure, uh, whether it's in white culture or whether it's in Afro-Latin culture, because I, I know that like coming in as an American, Asian American person into this scene that is not my culture, like born culture, that if I'm going to be like monetizing on it, if I'm going to be like using this in any sort of way, in order to be respectful, I need to like really understand it to the best of my ability. I think the first funny thing for me, uh, and, and it's kind of evolved through different phases, going through kind of like your beginner to intermediate phase, at least for me, I kind of acquired a basic level of understanding and competency to dancing to the music. One of the things I noticed was it was kind of a way to break down barriers, right? The way I always kind of described it was, it was kind of its own language that you can connect to other people with. And, and it kind of was like this gateway to be able to not only meet new people, but really kind of expand your exposure and, uh, and really kind of get different perspectives into your life. Now, the other thing is that as I took more classes, acquired more knowledge, you know, then um, it, it kind of took on more of a deeper appreciation of what the cultural roots are. When we get a chance to kind of peel back additional layers of the onion, get deeper into it, um, you get to kind of these other cultural nuances where you have a much deeper appreciation of where it came from, what the significance, what the symbolism is of it. And then to add on top of it, just that you have this activity that allows you to be able to connect with others, be able to enjoy in it and share that enjoyment with others as well. As a teacher and mentor slash coach um, in the dance community, for one, I feel a little bit more responsible um, as far as connecting with the culture and with the dance itself. Um, because in this case, ignorance is not a bliss. There is no hiding behind closed doors and say, I do not know the culture, therefore I can make comments or use certain dance um, as my own because the, the only reason that you're able to use this dance form is because of the culture. Latin dance is started from Afro-Cuban dance, it's Afro-Latin dance. A lot of the cultural roots is deeply grounded in your dance, so to deny um, that part and just say, oh, I'm just going to have some fun and do some shungle here and there. It's okay. Personally, for me, it's definitely not, um, especially as a teacher. Um, for me, I, I do want to do it right, um, not only as an Asian, but just as a teacher in general. For me, it's having a little bit more respect to do it right, only because I have a good understanding of what it is like um, to have a culture that's being used wrong in so many cases that I do not wish to do unto others that do not want to be done upon me. That Asian culture has been taken in so many different shapes and forms, um, whether it's music, costumes, looks, food, anything, you name it, that has been taken into so many different things, that's cultural appropriation versus um, actually learning it right. So yes, I absolutely do have much more of an understanding and respect for um, the Afro-Latin dancing as a culture, not just as a dance form. You know, learning a, more about um, Salsa's history has given me a greater appreciation for the who, when, where, and why of the dances and the music. For me, I recognize that I'm a guest in this culture and I want to be respectful. So I think it's it's been really cool um, getting to learn the whole culture and the history behind the dance, and I really value that. I feel like I have that pull to learn more about culture because I feel that culture is so prevalent in Asian culture and in our upbringing. You know, culture is such a big part of our lives. 
and being Asian American, like I, I am definitely, you know, half and half mixed Asian and American, but I feel I grew up culturally very Asian because my mom is my biggest influence growing up, you know, and culture is such a big part. There's so much meaning behind everything, behind the color you wear, behind the food you eat, behind when you eat the food, you know, all of those different aspects that I think culture is very rich for us and something we, we latch on to. Um, so that's something I definitely, uh, I felt, you know, the connection with this dance scene. I felt such a pull to the culture as well, besides just the dancing, besides the movement. There is so much, you know, to uncover. We're all so appreciative of and enamored with the Afro-Latin culture. How could you not? However, it was also necessary that we, as guests of this culture we love, recognize our role in honoring its Afro-Latin roots. The most important thing is learning, because as everyone has touched on, we are a guest of this culture. This is not our native culture. The most important thing is to learn and to respect. Train, learn, take classes from the right people. Not to say that don't take class from the people um, that are upcoming, but also to say that especially if you're diving deep into the cultural roots of salsa or Afro-Cuban, learn from the right teachers. Learn from the ones who are in this case, in Afro-Cuban, it's pretty standardized and it is very formal that there is an academy that you have to go to in order to teach publicly, in order to teach broadcast as an Afro-Cuban um, advocate, that you actually go to the Institute of Art in Cuba and get a master's degree in teaching Afro-Cuban, not just dancing, but actually teaching Afro-Cuban. Two, as an instructor, not to teach and say that, well, very easily that you're an Afro-Cuban instructor because I am not. I practiced this dance form, I understood this dance form, I'm training in this dance form. Um, therefore, I will pass on the torch from my teacher to all the people that I teach versus um, being, being an um, Afro-Cuban expert. That I am not. Um, so the tone and the attitude is really important, depends on how deep you're diving into that specific culture. And I think Three, um, this might be, this might sound really simple, but I do think it's important for you to learn Spanish <laughs> only because you're dancing to the songs that are, uh, if not all, but mostly Spanish. You're in a culture that's Latino or Latina in this case that you should be able to understand, if not all, but some of them, or at least try to. Um, the language is an open door that you can just walk into. Um, depends on how far you go, that, that's entirely up to you. But for me, it, it is the most simple um, and effective way to start understanding the culture. Also, absolutely participate in it, you know. Go make friends, uh, talk to your friends, and talk to the people that you know who are from this culture. Not just go out and party and dance and leave, but actually understand what they're enjoying, understand why we're dancing. My husband always says, I don't understand how can people just dance and only think about competition and performance because this is a social dance form. So, so for me, there's, there's uh, so many different aspects of this culture, of this dance, that if you um, really want to dive deep into it, you have all the opportunities in the world and then the tools to do so. Coming from a male, you know, our motivations for starting versus staying in dance. We start dancing in the hopes of meeting girls, and then we stay for the dancing and then all the things that come with it. And as I kind of reflect on that, one of the things I realized was that by continuing to participate in it, continuing to learn and push my comfort zone and expand my, my realm of exposure, kind of similar to what Peiwei said, one of the things that I realized was it was creating additional familiarity for me, which then kind of paid the path for me to be able to appreciate 
these nuances that I would come across, right? And so that kind of then created additional avenues to be able to celebrate new aspects of the culture that, you know, I would learn as I went along. You know, I, I was just thinking about how you asked me the question of um, my experience um, in the Latin Afro Latin dance community and how I touched on being feeling very welcomed. And I don't know if we're, I'll, I'll just say it. Um, it's making me think a lot about dismantling our own anti blackness because I've heard of different experiences from black women considering that this comes from you know black culture and black people one way to honor it is to examine our own internal biases and and call it out in other people too yeah and it's it's that and it's also learning the traditions learning the history and respecting and honoring all of that along with the people So I said that I don't, people don't really know that I'm Asian, but I, I do say like when I'm teaching that like, I am not X, Y, and Z. Um, I don't necessarily say that I'm Asian, but I like to, I like to make it very clear that I am not representing Dominican culture or I am not representing Cuban culture or whatever. And that there are Cuban artists, Dominican artists, et cetera, that you can also go learn from. I have been very very lucky where I actually live in a house um, with this company called Meta Movements, who um, the head person is Anara Frank, and she does such amazing work with basically cultural exchange between the Dominican Republic, Cuba, and the United States, um, where a lot of these dances um, come from. And so I've been really, really grateful where I've gotten to learn from the artist uh, in those countries where these dances come from. I feel like I've been making the best effort I can to, to learn as much as I can and to like immerse myself in like the artists from the, the countries themselves. And I think a, a huge part is just giving credit where credit's due. At the end of our conversation, we wanted to also explore how folks can actively help create a more anti-racist community, especially as it pertains to people of Asian descent. I mean, I always think that like these kinds of things, like talking about it is like the first step. How much awareness do I even have of like the racism in the dance community? Like how much have I just like put blinders on to? So I think like having these conversations with people like me who have put blinders on is a very good start because now I feel like maybe I'll be able to see things a little more clearly or start to like be aware of things a little bit more. Not only do we need to examine some of our own biases, but then for us to be very proactive about being more inclusive, right? So we are a guest in this dance in this activity that's a celebration of other uh, of another culture if we are going to benefit from the inclusiveness of it then we owe it to others to be inclusive of them um i also think what else we can do um well one well number two i guess listen to this podcast and and, and really jokes aside I, I think the other thing is is that we should not only be inclusive, but we should also embrace differences. When you embrace differences, when you get to learn the, from the experiences of others, right? Yes, you become smarter. You be, have a deeper appreciation for where others come from. You enrich your own life. And the thing is, you have a much better, richer experience for it. Sometimes the, the environment and, and the congresses that we go to opens up an environment where sexual assault and um, things of that nature can occur. It can affect, especially affect us because there's a lot of racialized sexual violence towards Asian 
American women. Um, so I think there should be more ways that we keep each other accountable and that's setting up systems of reporting, setting up ways where we, we are able to confront these issues as a community because yeah, I, I could have something happen to me and maybe I can confront it personally, but um, when you're, if something like that happens to you, like you might not, you, you need that community support. You might not be in the state of mind to say like, hey, I'm going to go, you know, file a police report. Maybe you have to talk to somebody about it. So I think introducing more methods of accountability is really important. I think one of the most basic things we can do is to just call it out, small or big, whatever happens, especially as Asians, we have to be supportive of each other. Um, if there's anything you hear or see, even if it's very tiny, even if it's just a harmless saying or anything that you feel as though it's, um, I keep using this word low-grade racism, <laughs> because for me, um, a phrase, those microaggressions, it does make you feel uneasy but it is, um, it is always there. Um, so I do think it's important to have these conversations um, with these specific individuals and understand that our fight, I think it's not towards these type of people because everyone makes mistakes and they're able to correct their mistakes and understand that our fight is actually with the system, with the xenophobia, with the misogyny, with everything that's wrong with the society, with the system, not with the people. Um, for me, that is a super important part to distinguish, and especially when we get angry, and I do get angry quite a, quite, quite a lot. And I have to constantly remind myself uh, that I've made mistakes before, everyone has, and to really just be understanding, especially um, because we're the group that's being discriminated against, um, we're almost not allowed <laughs> to make a mistake because then we're almost going against our own fight. And definitely do not stay your head down and do not work your butt off just for the sake that our culture say so. In this particular case, this is the way um, that we can actually fight for equality is to not to, to lower our heads and work our butt off. Now is the time to be speaking up, right? It's always been the time, but I feel we're all empowered more now to to speak up. And and like even you were saying, um, Peiwei, like low grade racism, or we've mentioned like microaggressions, or 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 even um, Leslie said this was very impactful when you said it, like death by a thousand paper cuts. Even by framing it like that, in a way, is downgrading the pain that we feel. It all still is racism. It all still is discrimination of, of different sorts. Um, and it is important that we do call it out, that we do speak up and that we are all anti-racist. And, you know, speaking up for one, I think is speaking up for all. Us speaking up for each other, us speaking up for our black and brown community, them speaking up for us, like the real fight is against white supremacy. We're only gonna do that together. Wow, this single went deep. We touched on so much today. From reliving past experiences, to introspection on our own Asian American identity, to honoring the roots of Afro-Latin culture while being from a different culture. As I said earlier, I've been doing a lot of reflecting. And the conversations in this episode have definitely led me to even more introspection on my experiences and my identity. I want to thank all of our guests for dedicating your time and being so open about your experiences and perspectives. It is our hope that this episode will start some dialogue around the Asian American experience, if you aren't already doing so. If you would like to continue the conversation, reach out to us on social media at mixtape.podcast on Instagram and mixtapepodcast on Facebook. Or if you want to learn more, check out our resources on our website. 
Thank you for listening. This is Mixtape. <laughs>